Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. My name is Rob, and this is episode two. Visigothic Dreams. Last time, we ran through a general history of the Iberian Peninsula at lightning speed, and we ended our narrative in the late 4th century. Today, we're going to slow down a bit and go over some of the major political and military events that ultimately led to the establishment of a Visigothic kingdom in the peninsula. We will discuss aspects of that kingdom's birth, life, and ultimately its death in the year 711 at the hands of the unstoppable wave of the conquering armies of Islam. But before we get started, it will come in handy to do a quick rundown of the location of the smaller sub-provinces of Hispania, since I will be referring to them with some frequency. In the year 409 AD, the province of Hispania was divided into five smaller provinces. Galicia in the northwest, Terraconensis in the northeast. We have then Carthaginensis, which encompassed most of central Spain and parts of the eastern coast. In the south, you had the province of Baetica, and lastly, the province of Lusitania, which encompassed parts of central Spain and the southwestern portion of the peninsula. All right, let's get this thing started. The Mediterranean world of late antiquity was in the midst of great change. Political fragmentation, religious divisions, mass migrations, invasions, and civil wars were all endemic in the 5th century. To begin with the religious divisions, the Christian world was rife with schisms and controversies. However, we will only touch upon the biggest division of the day, namely, Catholicism versus Arianism. Arianism derives its name from a priest named Arius of Alexandria, who championed the idea of the absolute oneness of divinity. 
The bare bones of this division revolved around the question of the nature of Jesus and his relationship to God. Very plainly, Arianism states that Jesus is the Son of God, who was begotten by God the Father and is from the Father, and is therefore subordinate to him. On the other hand, the Catholic position, a.k.a. the Nicene Creed, states, Jesus is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial of one being with the Father. In simple terms, the Arians believed that Jesus was separate and subordinate to God while Catholics believe that Jesus is God, basically, sort of. It's complicated. Not only would this distinction come to define centuries of inner-Christian conflict, but it would predictably spill into the political sphere, as kings and emperors would convert to one side or another, further cementing the conflict. We will leave the Great Schism right here for the moment and move on to the political happenings in the Iberian Peninsula, but just keep these distinctions in your back pocket for later. Tucked into the corner of the Roman Empire, the Iberian Peninsula had for centuries been a relatively stable and rich province never really at risk of being raided or attacked due in part to its geographical location and the strong defenses of the empire's frontiers. But as time went on and the empire began to lose the ability to defend its territories, that security all but evaporated. And in 409 AD, a barbarian confederation of Suevi, Alan, and Vandal tribes broke through the Pyrenees Mountains spilling onto the province of Hispania, plundering and destroying towns all along the way. Okay, but how exactly did this happen? Sources for this chaotic time period are severely lacking, and the sources we do have are, of course, inconsistent, but we do have some information. Of the three tribes that invaded the Iberian Peninsula in 409, the Suevi and the Vandals were Germanic tribes with whom the Romans had long-running contact with through trade, military recruitment, and war. The Alans, on the other hand, were a nomadic Iranian-speaking people from the Northern Caucasus. We have no information on what led up to this confederation being formed. All we know is that three years before they reached Iberia, in the winter of 406 AD, the Rhine River froze over, and these guys crossed over into the province of Gaul, which is roughly modern-day France. They initially met some resistance from the Franks. The Franks were a Germanic tribe that were allied with the Romans at this time, and incidentally, where France gets its name from. But these Franks were either unwilling or unable to stop this formidable force, and so the confederation passed into Gaul. In terms of how many people crossed into the empire, rough guesstimates put their numbers at about 200,000. Now, it should be noted that when these people crossed into the empire, they came with their families, so this does not mean 200,000 warriors, just the grand total. 
For the next three years, we don't know what this confederation was up to, besides rampaging through Gaul. If what was happening in other parts of the empire are any indication, this confederation was possibly seeking to reach some compromise with the imperial government by exchanging military service in return for cash, supplies, and, importantly, possible access to the imperial administrative structure, just as the Goths had already done. And speaking of Goths, it's about time I introduce the stars of today's episode, the Visigoths. The origin of the Goths is a hotly debated topic, so I'm sticking with the traditional narrative that the Goths had their origins in southern Sweden. The Goths made their way down to the region of the southern Danube, eventually crossing into the Roman Empire in the 250s AD. Now, you may have heard the terms Visigoth and Ostrogoth. Just like everything else related to this century, there are competing arguments on the origin of these terms. The most accepted being that the name Visigoth and its counterpart, Ostrogoth, simply denote Western Goth and Eastern Goth, respectively. However, it's important to note that even though we have names for these tribes, these names do not reflect a monolithic ethnic group in the modern sense. In very general terms, the Gothic social structure was organized as circles within circles, like a dartboard. The outer circles were fluid, where people of different backgrounds mingled and integrated. The smallest circle at the center consisted of a core ruling family, whose status was, in theory, hereditary. But in practice, that status was heavily dependent on the most important legitimizer of rule in late antiquity, victory in battle. Directly tied to victory in battle, was the obligation of the ruling family to reward their most powerful noble families with gifts of loot, land, and treasure. In this way, not only securing the loyalties of those same families, but, importantly, securing the warriors pledged to those families. Those same nobles would, in turn, reward their retinues in the same manner, thus securing their loyalty and their warriors. The type of loyalty expected of the warriors attached to their king was to the death. If the king was struck down in battle, it was expected that his immediate noble following should fight to the death around him. There were some big problems with such a cultural driver. First, in the event that the king died, the royal house's precious claim to legitimate rule was severely undermined. Second, since honor demanded suicidal last stands, the tribe was likely to lose a high proportion of its relatively small social and military elite. So, you can see the problem here. This type of cultural structure isn't exactly sustainable, and it did have a part to play in how things shook out when the Visigothic kingdom faced the Islamic armies from North Africa. But we'll get to that in a later episode. The Western Roman Empire of the 5th century was in bad shape. The near non-stop civil wars and successive plagues all took a heavy toll on the empire's economy and the availability of manpower, which, for one thing, hamstrung the Romans' ability to raise and equip their own legions. 
Consequently, the Roman military had become ever more dependent on employing warriors, both individually and as whole units, from the so-called barbarians who lived outside the empire's borders. And the Goths fulfilled this need perfectly, supplying the Roman army with experienced and well-trained warriors for decades. Additionally, Rome's continued and long-lasting presence diffused its culture well beyond its borders, to the point where there was little to no difference in appearance and equipment between imperial troops and those hired from outside the empire. And by the 4th century, Germanic troops inside the empire seemed to have been Christian, and as far as the Visigoths were concerned, Aryan Christian in particular. Through a complicated series of events that we will not get bogged down in, the Visigoths would eventually end up sacking the city of Rome in 410 AD, and by 418 they were officially settled in Aquitaine, in what is now France, as federated troops, which is kind of like a client state, but not really, but once again this is something we will not get bogged down in. We will leave the Visigoths right here for now, presumably sipping on some good wine. Now, back to the invasion of Iberia. The Germanic Confederation was able to successfully invade Hispania because the Roman state was on its last legs. The Western imperial apparatus was in a state of disintegration, with weak and ineffectual emperors. I mean, Rome itself was just sacked by the Goths in 410. And there simply just were no legions in Hispania. So by 411, the Germanic Confederation had established themselves and were dominant just about everywhere in Iberia. Once the dust settled, the new masters of Iberia, or most of it anyway, decided to divide their conquests among themselves for permanent settlement. Galicia was allocated to the Suevi and Hasding Vandals. Lusitania and Carthaginensis went to the Alans. Baetica went to the Silling Vandals, and Terraconensis remained under imperial control. For now. The Suevi were not satisfied with their little corner of the peninsula, and soon began attacking the Galician territory held by the Hasding Vandals. This was not a quick or easy war. Ultimately, the Suevi defeated the Vandals and occupied their territory. Emboldened by their success, the Suevi set their sights on more ambitious goals, eventually expanding their territory into Lusitania, then Baetica, and eventually western Terraconensis. In 448 AD, a new Suevic king came to power, Reciarius. He negotiated a peace treaty with the Roman authorities in Terraconensis, which confirmed his control of Galicia, Lusitania, and Baetica. This peace, however, was not destined to last, with the Suevi breaking the treaty a mere three years later by raiding Roman territory. You see, the Roman state was just unable to respond to these raids in any meaningful way, which might explain why in 455 AD, still under the leadership of King Ricciarius, the Suevi made a bold move that proved to be, well, a fatal mistake. They straight-up invaded Roman-held Terraconensis. 
In response, and under the orders of the Roman government, the Visigothic king Theodoric II amassed his army, entered Hispania, and just completely wrecked the Suevic forces in 456. The Suevic capital city of Braga was sacked, and the main Suevic strongholds were occupied in all the provinces they had controlled. And King Ricciarius was captured and, of course, executed. This campaign marked the end of Suevic preeminence in the Iberian Peninsula. They were defeated, but not destroyed. The Suevi would retain a quasi-independent kingdom for over the next century. Later, the successor to Theodoric II, King Eudic, conquered most of the peninsula, including Terraconensis, effectively ending Roman rule in the peninsula. Close to the same time, in 476, the last Western Roman emperor was deposed. The Western Roman Empire as a whole was finished. However, the age of the Visigoths in Iberia had just begun. But what happened to the Visigothic territory in Gaul, you ask? Well, in 507 AD, a combined Frankish and Burgundian force attacked Visigothic-held Gaul not only killing the Visigothic king at the time, but also sacking their capital city of Toulouse. Though this battle did not kick the Visigoths out of Gaul completely, it was just a matter of time until they withdrew almost entirely into the Iberian Peninsula. By all accounts, the Visigothic kingdom had a fairly organized administrative structure. Provinces were governed by a dukes a former Roman military title and the forerunner to the later title of duke. A prominent feature of Visigothic rule was lawmaking. As a consequence of the chaotic days of the Germanic invasions, central authority was ground down to basically nothing. So it landed on the local elites, city magistrates, and the church to take up day-to-day -day responsibilities of running local governments. With the stabilizing hand of Visigothic rule, these same Hispano-Roman elites helped Visigothic rulers draft and issue new law codes. Though some of the Hispano-Roman elites fled the peninsula, it seems that the majority stayed and continued to wield influence and status. You see, the Visigoths never intended on destroying the established power structures. If anything, they sought to integrate themselves in it. The societal structure under Visigothic rule in Iberia continued much the same as under late Roman rule, with the upper echelons of society consisting of great land-owning nobles. Working the land of said nobles were dependent tenants. Though technically free, they were tied to the land and therefore owed the landowners taxes and military service. Next, we have freedmen who continued the Roman tradition of working for their former owners who, in turn, had obligations as patrons to their former slaves. In between these social classes were the specialist classes, such as artisans and merchants. Women in Visigothic Iberia typically fell to the same status groups as men. However, since the Visigoths were a warrior culture, women were just valued less than men. We see this fact expressed in their legal code. Under the law, the fine for killing a woman was less than that of killing a man of the same class. At the very bottom of the pyramid, we have slaves. Most slaves were tasked with hard labor such as mining and field work. Others were engaged in domestic service, 
held minor administrative jobs, and did trade work. Needless to say, slaves had no rights. They could be bought and sold at any time and suffer severe punishments. An owner could kill a slave for any or no reason at all. Slaves could be freed by the courts and also by their owners. The Roman Catholic Church was about the only institution that not only survived but actively thrived through and after the chaos of the barbarian invasions. As we know, the Catholic Church would eventually become one of the dominant institutions across Europe for centuries to come. But its rise to prominence in Iberia did not occur overnight. Initially, the spread of Christianity was mostly an urban phenomenon. The rural peasantry was generally very conservative and understandably attached to the ways of their ancestors and had little interest in newfangled cults from the East. It took considerable time and resources for the church to send out missionaries in an effort to convert the countryside to Christianity. The solution the church came up with was to develop a parish system that placed clergy in assigned communities permanently. This way, consistent church-approved dogma could be delivered to far-flung communities. On a more macro level, the church's urban institutions were linked through a network of episcopal cities, where each city typically contained a bishop's palace, a central church, a baptistry, a cemetery, and so on and so forth. Not only did this city linkage serve multiple purposes, such as to strengthen ties between clergy of different cities, but also, once again, served as a method to try and ensure consistency of doctrine and of practice. Now, if you'll recall, the Visigoths converted to the Aryan branch of Christianity, and given that we've just talked about how entrenched the Catholic Church was in Iberia, it should come as no surprise that there were tensions between the local Catholic population and the Aryan ruling aristocracy. Which brings us to the reign of the man who basically embodies this tension. I speak, of course, of the Visigothic king, Leovigild. Leovigild came to power either in 571 or 573 AD and is primarily known for unifying most of the Iberian Peninsula under the Visigothic banner. He also holds the distinction of being the last Aryan king of the Visigoths before the Visigothic conversion to Catholicism. Leovigil's relationship with the Catholic Church was a contentious one. We see in the written record a theological and sometimes an even physical battle between the two for power and legitimacy. Leovigild attempted to expand his power base by installing Arian bishops and Arian churches in cities that were already claimed by the Catholics. Inevitably, ecclesiastical and territorial turf wars were the result of these provocative moves. And to complicate matters even further, the territorial conflicts were not just about the churches. They were about something very special housed inside some of those churches namely, saints' relics. And to illustrate this conflict, we have a work that has survived from 630 AD called Lives of the Holy Fathers of Merida. The work chronicles the lives of the Catholic bishops of the city before the Visigothic kings converted to Catholicism. 
In it, Leovigild is portrayed as a devil-worshipping monster intent on flipping the bishop of the city, a guy named Masona, back to Arianism. You see, Masona was an Arian goth who converted to Catholicism and then later became the bishop of Merida. So, he was center stage in this conflict in more ways than one. Just keep in mind that this work is not only biographical, but a piece of Catholic propaganda that portrays these events in terms of morality and faith. So, we have to take this account with a heaping tablespoon of salt. The Lives of the Holy Fathers begins by describing Leovigil's reaction upon hearing of the virtue of Bishop Masona of Merida. Being that the heretical king was under the influence of the devil, he demanded that the bishop turn away from the one true Catholic faith. We're told that through messengers, Bishop Masona courageously refused these unholy demands and deftly rebuked the king with visible disapproval. The king then changes to a softer tact. Quote, the king began to tempt his soul by various persuasions, in the hope that in some way he might incline him to his wicked pleasure. Unquote. We can only guess as to what various persuasions Leovigild was attempting in exchange for support of his Aryan position, but it didn't work. We're then told that, furiously, Leovigild began to terrorize and threaten the bishop. We're not given specifics as to how he was terrorizing the bishop, only that it didn't work. What we're seeing here is the king trying to secure the important bishopric of Merida. Now, he could be doing this from a purely pragmatic standpoint. After all, the bishopric of Merida was a powerful position, and he who held it was in a mighty influential position. He could also have been motivated by just sincere religious beliefs, promoting what he considered to be the true version of Christianity. Unfortunately, we just don't know his motivations, but regardless of what they were, Bishop Masona was unmoved and standing firm. According to the lives of the Holy Fathers, it's around this time that the king attempted to replace Bishop Masona with his own man, a new Arian bishop that would toe the line, Bishop Suna. Here is how this event and the insertion of the new bishop are described. It's pretty great. Quote, Realizing that neither by threats nor by bribes could he make the man of God turn from the true faith, the cruel tyrant, wholly a vessel of wrath, fomenter of vice, and root of all damnation, whose breast the fierce enemy and crafty serpent occupied and held in his control, gave to his people bitter instead of sweet things, harsh instead of mild measures, death-dealing potions instead of health. With the object of arousing seditious uprisings and of disturbing the bishop and all his people, he appointed as bishop of the Arian party in the city a certain wicked man, an out-and-out -out supporter of the Arian heresy, whose name was Suna. He was a supporter of the wicked doctrine, a playful and harsh-featured man. His brow was wild, his eyes savage, his aspect hateful, his movements horrifying. He was sinister in mind, depraved in character, lying of tongue, and of obscene speech. 
turgid exteriorly, empty interiorly, puffed up without, vapid within, inflated externally, devoid of all virtue internally, deformed both within and without, lacking in goodness, abounding in evil, guilty of crime, and exceedingly reckless of eternal death. This forester of heresy came to Merida at the command of the king and boldly took some churches and all their privileges, appropriating them for himself. Unquote. We're told that then Bishop Suna took over some churches and all of their privileges, but more importantly, he attempted to take over the basilica that housed the tunic of the patron saint of Merida, Saint Eulalia. Now, you may not be aware of this, but religious relics were a big deal. A saintly relic could just about be anything purported to have been either owned by the saint or the saint themselves. Items such as bones, hair, and clothing of a saint were highly prized, not only for their supposed miraculous powers, but for the prestige that these items brought to the kingdom and especially the church that housed them. These were high-value items, so it's no surprise that Bishop Masona and the local Catholic population resisted the confiscation attempts by the Arians. Once that attempt was unsuccessful, the Chronicle states that Bishop Suna wrote many letters to Leovigild, asking for a royal order to force Bishop Masona to give up the Church of St. Eulalia. In response to those letters, Leovigold made the following decree, quote, that both bishops be cited and appear before judges who were to sit in the bishop's palace and, in their presence, engage in an oral conflict in defense of either side, arguing against each other alternatively, fortify and back up by arguments drawn from the holy scriptures. Whatever claims each one made, he in whose side won the triumphant victory should likewise possess the church of St. Eulalia." Unquote. And at this time, you might be asking yourself, why go through the trouble of having a debate of all things to settle this matter? And who even are the judges for this debate? To answer the second question first, the judges, well, they were other bishops that, according to the Chronicle, the vast majority of whom were Arians and supporters of the king. So, the decision to settle this problem with a quote-unquote debate should make sense now. You can at least give the appearance of a fair hearing while stacking the judge's bench with bishops that are loyal to you. But as usual, when it came to Masona, he had one thing going for him that the king didn't. Divine favor. We're told that Masona was so divinely inspired that he absolutely crushed this debate, and I mean crushed it. So much so that Bishop Suna had no response to Masona's arguments. So, Suna did what he always did. He complained to the king. You can imagine that by now, Leovigild was sick and tired of this problematic bishop. So, the king then commanded Bishop Masona to be removed from his see and come to Toledo, where the king resided. We're then told that once Masona was in the king's presence, that the king berated him and demanded that Masona give him the tunic of St. Eulalia. Masona then informed the king that he burnt the tunic, 
mixed the ashes with water, and drank it. He then pointed to his belly and said, quote, Look, there it is within my stomach. Never shall I give it to you. Unquote. The chronicle then continues to say, quote, This he said because, without anyone knowing it, he had folded the tunic and wrapped it in linen cloths. He then wound it about his stomach under his clothes and wore it thus, God alone aware of it. Unquote. The king dispatched his agents to look for the tunic, but to no avail, not knowing that the tunic was right there under his nose in Toledo. Infuriated, Leovigild exiled Bishop Masona, but get this. He recalled him three years later after supposedly having a dream where St. Eulalia appeared to him and proceeded to whip him and beat him and demanded the restoration of Bishop Masona to her church in Merida, which he did. Now, that's one hell of a story, but remember this, it's just that, a story. And some serious revenge fantasy fiction there at the end. But I hope it helps to illustrate the conflict that was at play, if not in fact, then at least in spirit. Though up to this point, the Visigothic kingdom had been the dominant political entity in Iberia, it wasn't the only political entity in the peninsula. Over the next six years, Leovigild waged numerous military campaigns, in which he expanded the kingdom into new territories. He reclaimed some territories that had been lost to invasions or rebellions, and eliminated groups of roving bandits that plagued the kingdom. He also took the interesting step of making his two sons from a previous marriage, Hermenegild and Recared, his consortes regni, or partners in the kingdom. Which is why it may have come as a bit of a shock when in 579 AD, Leovigild's eldest son, Hermenegild, revolted against his father and took the province of Baetica as his own little kingdom. And to further complicate things, we're told that in that same year, Hermenegild converted from Arianism to Catholicism. There have been both ancient and modern speculation as to the exact reasons Hermenegild rebelled. But given his conversion to Catholicism that same year, there could very well have been religious motivations in play. There's evidence that backs up the idea of religion playing at least a part of this rebellion. Since about 10 years after Hermenegild's death, Pope Gregory the Great declared him a Catholic martyr. This rebellion, however, was not destined to last. Three years later, in 582, Leovigild began preparations to wage war upon his son. And in 583, Leovigild began the Siege of Seville, which surrendered the very next year in 584. Hermenegild escaped to the city of Córdoba before Seville had surrendered, though he didn't get much further before he was captured and exiled to Valencia. The next year, in 585, Hermenegild ended up being unceremoniously murdered under very suspicious and poorly understood circumstances. The prime suspects being either his father or his younger brother, Recared. Once this matter was settled, Leovigild locked onto his next target, the Suevic kingdom in Galicia ruled by King Audica. 
The late ancient historian Gregory of Tours states that in 585, Leovigild, quote, devastated Galicia, captured and deposed Audica, and brought the Suevic people, treasure, and land under his own rule, unquote. And this, my friends, marks the end of the Suevic kingdom, where they just disappear from the historical record. The campaign against the Suevi turned out to be Leovigil's last campaign. The very next year, in 586 AD, Leovigil died, leaving his son Recared with a mostly united peninsula. Recared's ascension to the throne was something of a watershed moment for the Visigothic kingdom, particularly in terms of its religious divisions. See, for some time now, even during the reign of Leovigild, the Goths were slowly but surely converting to Catholicism. As mentioned before, even the staunchly Catholic bishop Masona was originally an Arian. There had been a concerted effort for years to try and reform Arianism to make it a little bit closer to Catholicism. The best example of this was an Arian council that was held in Toledo around the year 580. The end result of this ecclesiastical gathering was a modification to Arian theology, where the co-eternity and equality of Jesus to God was accepted, but still denied the co-equality of the Holy Spirit. The fact that this council was held during the reign of Leovigild, who was supposedly an enemy of Catholicism, seems to indicate that perhaps the hard lines drawn in the sand by our sources were, you know, more flexible than they cared to admit. Just ten months after his ascension to the throne, in a clear signal to the rest of the Aryan nobility that changes were coming, Recared converted to Catholicism. And in May of 589, the Third Council of Toledo was convened. And this was no run-of-the-mill council. This was a big one. This was the council that finally put to bed the Arian-Catholic conflict by effectively eliminating Arianism from the kingdom. Naturally, there were those who stood to lose in the new order of things, and Recared faced multiple revolts and challenges to his rule, but these were ultimately all unsuccessful. In 601 AD, 15 years after he ascended to the throne, Recared died, leaving the throne to his 18-year-old son, Liuva. But a mere two years later, in 603, members of the nobility led a coup that deposed and killed Liuva, and with him died the line of Leovigild. We now enter a period where contemporary sources are close to non-existent, and those we have leave much to be desired. So the rest of the century is therefore much more obscure and on shaky ground. Consequently, we will go back to taking a macro view of the events in the peninsula. For the remainder of the 7th century, the Visigothic nobility settled into a pattern of continual scheming, assassination, and revolts. Needless to say that this incessant infighting did the Visigothic kingdom no favors and led to a steady erosion of stability and of diminishing manpower. During the same time, on the ground level, we begin to see a rise of anti-Semitic legislation that steadily increases in severity and scope. Jewish communities had been present in Iberia since at least the times of Rome, 
there were sporadic periods of hostility and persecution, but never any real concerted efforts by the authorities against the Iberian Jews. That is, until now. Jews were prohibited from holding public office, building new synagogues, converting others to Judaism, and owning slaves. We later see forced baptisms, and during the 630s AD, we even have a decree expelling all Jews from the Visigothic realm. Though how this would have been implemented is unknown, and it seems to have been ineffective since over the subsequent decades we have even more anti-Semitic legislation, such as in 654, where circumcision along with celebrating the Passover were both banned. And just when you think it can't get any worse, in 694 AD, a new decree ordered that all Jewish children under six be given to Christian families, along with property confiscation. Now, why exactly was there an explosion of anti-Semitism in the Visigothic Kingdom? Well, the final years of the Visigothic Kingdom were really bad. In the 680s, we see plague and famine besetting the kingdom, which led to heavy death tolls. That resulted in labor shortages and greater social tensions. And as we see in later centuries, when Christian kingdoms go through bad times, the Jews tend to get blamed for those bad times. It has also been posited that the Visigothic kings were getting increasingly worried and paranoid about the possibility of Jewish collaboration with the Muslim armies that were known to be conquering their way through North Africa. But that is just speculation. We will leave the Visigoths right here for now, distracted, at each other's throats, and creating the kind of chaos that could, I don't know, be exploited by an energetic young commander sitting across the Strait of Gibraltar, just waiting to make his move. Next time on History of Portugal, we will take a brief detour and hop over to the Arabian Peninsula and take a look at a new religious and military movement that coalesced into one of the most impactful political entities the world has ever known. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.